and welcome to episode three of Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And happy February and greetings and salutations, everyone. My name is Matt Markin. It's episode three, and Matt always laughs at me for how I pronounce that number, because in Ireland, when a word has TH at the beginning, we tend to drop the H, and so, uh, yeah, it, it tree trees. Uh, so uh, I hope uh, I hope you're enjoying my pronunciation, Matt. Uh, I'm sorry. Could you say that again? <laughs> Episode three. Oh, okay. I just wanted to make sure I understood it correctly. <laughs> um, so we we are now in the the second second month of the year, and uh, people will be listening to this on Monday the third. So there's another th word for you. Thank you. <laughs> and. Um, uh, I think in in the last episode we we may have got the date wrong. Yes, well, I, thanks for saying we. It was actually me that got it wrong. Uh, I will admit. So, column said that we're going to have episodes at the the first Monday of every month with potentially some bonus episodes, and I went and said yes, that's going to be Monday, February fourth. Only to find out afterwards that it's Monday, February third. So, my apologies. I think that's 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 a minor uh, minor mistake, but uh, it, it, there we're taking the time to to make uh, to to own up and and to to correct the error. Um, now, since we the last episode, there there's been quite a bit that has happened. There has. Um, hopefully, those of you that were interested in submitting proposals for Nakata conferences, that you got your proposal in for the international conference, which that deadline was last month. But just know, if you're still looking to submit a proposal for the annual conference in San Juan, Puerto Rico, that one is coming up for the deadline of February 20th. Mm-hmm. And hopefully uh, people will uh, get their submissions in. Um, it should be a, a kind of all Nakata events are really interesting. Um, but the annual conference is obviously the, the big event in the year. So if you are at all considering and you're on the fence, I would urge you to, to submit a proposal. Um, I, I guess the other question to ask at this point, Matt, is um, you said that one of the your goals for this year was that you were going to read more. So have you followed through on that? Have you been reading more? I have indeed. Yes. Uh, so one of my New Year's resolutions or goals was to or is to read one article a week. So I have been doing that. I've been reading a couple articles on the professionalization of academic advising, as well as getting through the latest um, Nakata journal that has plenty of articles and information in it. So that's keeping me busy. So I have been able to stay on top of that. I've also stayed on top of reading one book a month. So I mentioned in the last podcast that I actually started reading um, that and started doing that goal in December. So I read a book on Keanu Reeves in December. And last month, I read a book by Mark Manson called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Certain Word. And that one is one that I really like. Um, I highly recommend folks to read it. It's not about not caring. It is about caring, but really looking at it from a standpoint of how many things that we care about that really aren't as important that we spend our time day in and day out thinking of. And in a month or a year, it's really not going to matter that much. So it's kind of repositioning how we think and what we spend our time thinking about and what really is our passion and what is something that we really should be putting our time toward. 
So that too I've been staying on top of. This month I'm actually going to be reading a book on the appreciative advising revolution. So it's actually a few years old. Haven't got a chance to read it. It's been something that I have had for years and I'm happy to get the chance to read it this month. How about you, Colm? Have you been staying on top of your goals? Uh, I I have. I suppose since the the episodes came out, I traveled to Malaysia, um, which is a truly fascinating country, and I would recommend uh, people check it out. The um, Malaysian people are so uh, wonderful and friendly, and it, certainly in comparison to the winter in Dublin, um, it was lovely, but it the time on the planes did afford me an opportunity to do some reading i've been reading a lot of non-fiction books and quite topically um though this episode is going to come out just after super bowl sunday and i am reading a biography of joe montana at the moment and uh, who knows maybe those listening um the 49ers will have won another super bowl we'll see joe montana made me cry as a child he he destroyed my dreams because i am a big denver broncos fan and um the 49ers put the biggest beat down in super bowl history on the denver broncos 55 10 they truly annihilated us and as a child that was the first super bowl i watched and yeah i i cried i cried too but mine were tears of joy yeah. Because the 49ers, San Francisco, I'm from California, and my cousins and a lot of my family live in San Francisco, so they are diehard 49ers fans. And so Joe Montana was a hero of mine. Well, look, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that. Look at that. You are getting to enjoy my pronunciation of TH words and my reading choices. Look at you. Well, maybe I can borrow that book after you're done with it. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll I'll I can pass that on. I'm, I I love to to keep books in circulation. I think once you read a book, you should try and pass it on to somebody else so that they get the opportunity. So, um, yep, let's let's do that. Sounds like a plan. Thanks. Um, well, look, we we have a, a packed episode today, and it's an episode I am actually really, really excited about because one of my passions and, and the reason I work in higher ed and in advising is the student experience, and that is what today's episode is all about. It is, and we were once students, and a lot of times we need to really kind of think about every time we're meeting with our students, we were there once. And as much, though, as we might have similar situations um, and challenges and successes as them, each student is still an individual with everything that they are going through. Um, But I wanted to ask you and kind of put you on the spot with this one column is, do you remember anything specific that stood out to you when you were a student, maybe your first year of college? Um, there, there's quite a couple of things, I suppose. <laughs> One of the things that stands out, the very first thing was orientation. 
Okay, and this is an interesting one um, because uh, you go through the, um, you know, the, the school system and it's very regimented and your day is regimented and you have very little choice in terms of the classes that you take and anything in your timetable. And you're, you're in from a set time. You go in in Ireland and in our, it was the case that we were in at nine o'clock and we were there until 4.45 and you didn't leave. And so I go along and during orientation, the dean of the, because I, I, um, I'm a liberal arts grad, and the dean of the arts faculty said every year that uh, there were students at university who didn't attend classes really, but they still sat exams and they did quite well. And personally, he saluted those students. And I thought, wow, I, I'm not in Kansas anymore. And while I didn't take it to heart to not go to class, it, I guess, showed me that university college was not going to, to be like secondary school, that the way the approach was going to be different. And I think that for me, because I didn't take it literally, it actually stood me in good stead to say, this is where I'm going to need to question, to think critically, to take my own approach to things. So that was on day one, and it set me up for my undergrad and my postgrad career. Nice. Well, it's nice that you mentioned uh, orientation, because when I think of something that stood out to me story-wise, has to also do with orientation. So when I went to Cal State San Bernardino for orientation, I had gotten this letter prior to that from the Education Opportunity Program, also known as EOP. So it's a program I got accepted into, and it's a program for first-generation, um, historically low-income and disadvantaged students. And the letter said, when you go to orientation, you're going to be part of the EOP group. And so I get to orientation. I have the letter with me. I get in line and check in. And they have me with the math group because I was a math major at that that time. So my gut reaction is just to say, well, I'm supposed to be with the EOP group. But I didn't. I was too scared to ask. So I just figured, well, if they have me with the math group, that just means that they changed their mind. I'm with the math group. I'm probably still part of this program, but I'm with the math group now. So the whole day, I'm going with this math group, doing all the activities and learning new things, learning about campus resources, getting my advising and then registering for classes. And I had this letter with me that I keep looking at, like, I'm supposed to, maybe there's something here. I'm supposed to, there might've been a mistake potentially. But at the time, I'm like, nah, universities don't make mistakes. This, they, they change their mind. So orientation is now over. Students are leaving. The staff and the volunteers are going to this barbecue. I'm outside this building called Jack Brown Hall. And there's uh, a staff member standing outside who's kind of like guiding students, you know, where to go, you know, to, to leave. And I just said, let me go up to this person. So I'm this nervous wreck. And I go up and I'm like, excuse me, like I got this letter and I said I was supposed to be part of this EOP group. And I've been with the math group all day. And I'm probably just try talking gibberish. And somehow she understood what I was trying to say. And she's pretty much done, right? She's supposed to go to this barbecue for helping out. She's just guiding students right now to, to leave. She's like, well, that department's over in University Hall, and it's you know a few-minute walk away. And she starts trying to point where it's at. The problem is there's all these like trees and another building in the way of where this building she's trying to explain to me is at. She probably sees that I have like this confused look on my face. And so she ends up saying, you know what? Let me walk you 
to University Hall. Yeah, she doesn't have to do this. So she walks me over to University Hall, and on the way, she's like, well, EOP, their department may not be open. It's a Saturday, and everyone's really just here for orientation. Everyone's probably left, but you know, let's go and see. So she walks me to University Hall, and then she's like, well, it's on the third floor. And anyone that is from Cal State San Bernardino that knows University Hall on the third floor, the number system is off on that, that floor because within each office, there's numbered offices. So you might on the hallway go from like room 350 and then the next room literally in the hallway is like 380 so everything's kind of thrown off so she's trying to explain to me like where to go and then she's like you know what eops if we go to this other stairwell on the first floor and then go up to the third floor it's right around the corner so she walks me into the building walks me to this other stairwell she actually walks me up to the second floor and actually two and a half floors up and she's like, all right, it's just right up there. Go through the door, make a left. You got it? And I was like, okay. Did that and then ran the EOP, go into the EOP office. They're <laughs> packing up to leave. And the, my counselor, Carolyn Stevens, sees me and she's on her way. And she's like, you know what? Let's get a meeting scheduled. She's like, I, I, I'm unfortunately going to be leaving, but we'll make this happen. I, she's like, mistakes happen. I don't know what happened here. You have, you know, that you got the letter, but they put it with the math group. It's fine. Don't worry. Sets me up an appointment. And then Alice Martinez, who also worked in that office, she's like, before you leave, let's kind of just make sure if you have any holds, let's check your financial aid package. So she's checking all this stuff for me. So by the time I leave, uh, my dad had taken me, driven me to uh, orientation. So he was just waiting out in the parking lot. Like, mind you now, all the students are gone. All the parents are gone. Like he's one of the last people in the parking lot. He's just like, what happened? <laughs> I was going to send a search party out for you. And um, I was just explaining to him like how great EOP was and all what happened. And he understood. But I mean, I think the moral of this story, at least for me, is like there was so much help just by asking. And had I asked originally, none of this would have happened. But I'm kind of glad it did. Because especially with um, the person who did help me and walked me, her name is Ellie Galt. So the following month, I had an interview as a student assistant in admissions. And guess who worked there? Ellie Galt. So then I got to tell her the story. And she's like, I don't really remember that. All the, you know, all this stuff happens. But oh, my gosh, it's you know, so great that, that that happened. And you're here. And we get to work together. And then years later, the office I'm in now, she also works there. So it kind of has gone full circle with all of that. So that's kind of like the one of the experiences that stands out to me um, as a student. That's a lovely story. And I think, as you said, a, a testament to how important it is to ask for help, but a testament also to how impactful little things can be for students. When when you come into a new environment, um, somebody just showing kindness to you can make such a difference, something so small. And I, I think that is something I, I try to 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 bring to to my work as, with students is it, a lot of it is always a new experience and we rightly put a lot of focus on first years but that transition from first to second year that could be huge as well and sometimes I think we we probably should look at uh you know the support that, that we put in place for um you know tr those sorts of transitions because um, it's not like suddenly, you know, you, you, you remember everything. You can be given an orientation uh, at the beginning of first year, but then, you know, you, you have a whole summer um, and then you come in to, to second year. So, yeah, I, maybe, maybe that's something we'll talk about in a future podcast. But thanks for, thanks for sharing that story.
Yeah. And what's great about this episode is we are talking about student perspectives and we have a few of them that, that we're going to get into in a little bit. But we do have a very special guest that we're going to talk about and interview. Um, and uh, I, I'm excited about this because uh, I have, I suppose, I've known this person for, for a little while and I've seen this person speak and I know how passionate they are on the topic of advising and I know how knowledgeable they are and I think that, you know, they offer an awful lot of insight and practical practical knowledge and things that people can bring to their everyday work in this interview. All right, so let's go right into it and let's introduce our first guest. So we have Brett McFarland. Brett serves as the Associate Director for External and Institutional Partnerships at NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising. In this role, he is responsible for creating and sustaining a formal infrastructure in which external partners and institutions collaborate with NACADA in support of the association's goals, focused on enhancing academic advising programs, structures, processes, training, and professional development worldwide. Prior to his role with Nakata, Brett served as the Executive Director of Academic Advising at the University of California, Davis, as well as other advising leadership positions at Oregon State University and Portland State University. So here we go. Brett, how are you? I am fabulous and so excited to be on this podcast with you two. Well, we are delighted to uh, to have you on as a guest Um I, I think it, it's fantastic uh, that we get the opportunity to talk with kind of so many interesting and diverse uh, people. So thank you for, for taking the time to uh, to chat to myself and Matt. We kind of wanted to put you on the spot with our first question. And that is, do you remember the first time you met each of us? I do remember that. So the most recent was Column. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually were part of a, I facilitated a lightning round at the uh, Belgium conference. Yeah, you did. And the first time we were introduced was on a Zoom call as we were preparing for that with colleagues from um, Baltimore, Maryland, who were also part of that lightning round. So that was the first time. And then in person at an exciting uh, reception at the conference. Yeah. Well, it was because that 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 reception. Um, not only was it the the first time that I met you, Brett, but it was the ended up being the the first time I met Matt, and uh, we talked a little bit about that and how Matt and I met in episode one. But we were both uh, chatting to you uh, when when Charlie Nutt uh, came came up came upon us and uh, said that we should work together. Exactly. Yeah, and, and Matt, I know. Uh... As we go back in time, it was, I believe, at the California Davis conference where the California Collaborative was meeting, Uh, and that was year two of that event. The first one was in Los Angeles, and that was where I believe we met for the first time, and it's been exciting to see the amazing work that you've done to continue with that collaborative, and I know it's coming up soon uh, this year, so... Yeah, I mean, our fifth annual one's coming up in March. Uh, so just, yeah, just right around the quarter. 
And yeah, I, I remember seeing you at the Dominguez Hills one. Uh, so the first California Collaborative Conference. Um, but I was racking my brain um, earlier because I couldn't remember when did I exactly meet you? Because I knew it wasn't first at an Akata conference. I remember it was had to have been at one of the collaborative conferences, but yeah, um, definitely was the, the Davis one. Um, because actually with that one, uh, Chris Linfelt, um, our former associate uh, dean of undergraduate studies at Cal State San Bernardino, was supposed to end up going because um, he was on the steering committee for, for that conference. And right. um, he couldn't make it, so he sent um, Ed Mendoza, my now boss, and myself to go. And yeah, that's where we met. And then we've been talking and chatting and working together ever since. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, Brett, uh, Matt, in Matt's introduction, he mentioned that you are the Associate Director of External and Institutional Partnerships at NACADA. And uh, I suppose uh, for listeners, what, what, does, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Well, let's start with, isn't that the biggest mouthful of a title that you've ever heard and one of the most confusing ones? So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't want to say that, you know, but um, it, it, I, I think an explanation w- would be helpful yeah, for, yeah. for people, uh, certainly. <laughs> it, it's descriptive. I'll tell you that it's descriptive. But as far as what does that practically mean, it, practically what that means, um, I'm working really closely um, with one of our Nakata strategic goals. So we have seven Nakata strategic goals that the board of directors are responsible for working through. One of those strategic goal three is promoting the role of effective advising and student success to college and university decision makers. And so when you really boil down a lot of what I do is finding ways that we can, um, work with institutional leadership, with system-wide leaders, with state leaders, to allow them to understand, better understand how important advising can be and the potential for what advising can help achieve at their institution. Uh, And then being able to set up, again, ways that we can continue to see that progress over time and people understand the value of advising and of advisors in a different way than they do today. So that that would be kind of a broad piece of it. It, it, it includes working with uh, our consultants um, service that we have through Nakata, and then also working with uh, partners around the country and actually around the world in some cases uh, on advocating for advising in broader ways. Nice. Now you said uh, uh, there were seven goals that Nakata had. How does how does Nakata come up with these goals? So these are ones. Uh, the strategic goals are developed uh, by the board of directors, and there's not a set timeline for you know every three years or every four years. It's it's really doing regular check-ins that the board does to see how things are progressing with those goals, seeing if they need to be reestablished. Um, And so these particular ones and this particular goal was developed probably three to four years ago. I don't remember exactly, Um, but it's it's one that's been um, very important to the association to be able to help advocate again for advisors and the important work that that you all do out there. So um, I I suppose your your passion for advising shines through, I think, uh, 
from anyone who knows you would say that. But for listeners who maybe don't know you or, or those who don't know you so well, how did you get involved in, in advising? Yeah, no, happy to share that. So, um, well, let me start with, and don't worry, we're not going to go back from day one to kindergarten or anything like that, but it feels like that when I talk about me as an undergraduate, but I got no advising whatsoever as an undergraduate, um, no help in figuring out what the right major was or field or anything like that. And so uh, I used a lot of dysfunctional sources in making those decisions, um, ended up my senior year, I um, went into, I believe it was a peer advisor, but I don't even know. It was a grad student, someone, someone that told me, guess what? You're not graduating. You're going to have to take another year because you uh, didn't complete your courses correctly. And I'm like, well, I have this checklist. I did it just right. And of course, we're all familiar with the two words that you know are going to come out of my mouth next, catalog year. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, so that was my introduction to advising. Not a good one. Went in, and then I was a CPA for 10 years, and um, again, a career that was not a good match for me. And most importantly, what I found was that that career just wasn't feeding me personally. There was nothing I was getting out of it. I mean, um, you know, I managed a pretty large team uh, across the world doing this work, and that really wasn't fulfilling me at all. Um, and ultimately, when I boiled down my job, it was making fairly rich people richer, uh, which was not feeding me in any way. And so uh, I went, I just went right to my boss. I quit my job that day, didn't have anything else lined up, didn't know what I was going to do, and then started seeing a career counselor. And everything kept coming back to higher education because higher education is where people are there to actually make changes voluntarily (laughs) in their lives and improve themselves. And so I knew that's where I needed to be. And I started a graduate class in adult learning principles. It was my first one that I'd ever taken. I knew immediately that that was where I needed to be. I just happened to be able to get a job as an academic advisor in the School of Business because of my background. And that's where my passion for advising really began. You were talking about leaving the CPA position and having nothing lined up. To me, that just sounds super scary, where it's just there's nothing I have that I I know I'm going to do after. But I know right now I don't want to do what I'm doing now. Um, And then when you got into academic advising, was being an advisor something that you had thought about doing at some point or it kind of just, it came about and you fell into it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into the admissions game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. Yeah, it was interesting, Matt. The I'm a catastrophizer, so I think of worst-case scenarios, and, and then, I, then I think forward and say, am I going to be okay with that? 
Um, and if I can come up with the answer, yes, then I better move forward. What I found, though, as I was doing the work, and you asked about whether it was just natural, I, I looked at all the fields in, in higher education, and this was the one that really spoke to me, and I'm, I'm sure it was because of a lot of the experiences or lack of experiences I had had, but I knew immediately this is a place that has tremendous potential. Um, and I would still be doing day-to-day advising today if it hadn't also been the experience that when I would meet with students, what I was finding was that the majority of the things that they were encountering had nothing to do with them. They had to do with really poor structures, um, systems, things like that, that were essentially doing things to them. Um, and with my background work that I'd done already in audit, I knew that that was a place where I could make some positive contributions. And so um, it's not that I fell in love with advising administration. <laughs> it's that I saw that's where we could make really powerful, broad change. And that's ultimately how I ended up in the roles I'm in. Well, I think that's a, a real testament to you. That I mean, that story that you don't get any advising yourself. And rather than be completely turned off of advising, something within you says, I, this should this should be better. And so that's what you go and do. And you begin, uh, you know, it, t- it might take a bit of time, but you get involved in advising and then you realize, no, I, I actually want to make structural changes. And then you take the leap to the next level. And uh, I think, that's really inspiring to certainly for me and I think for other people to to hear that and I think a testament to you in the way in which you went about it that you 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 know you were inspired by the lack of something yeah and I think you you both know as you get into this field and with Nakata and with people that are in advising are in advising for the right reasons and so just the the support and the guidance and the mentorship and along the way uh, was always available. People were always willing to, to, to help me learn more about these different challenges in higher ed, the things that are new to me. So it was, yeah, it was a really powerful experience. And so then you've kind of found your way through like Portland State University, Oregon State University, and then... Um... Prior to going to uh, your new role at Nakata, you were at um, University of California, Davis. Um, can you talk about some of the things that you did in those roles or like maybe as executive director of academic advising, what you did at Davis for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the, the, the primary role of any of these sort of campus-wide positions I see is, is really working to empower the excellence that's already there in the advising community, being able to pull people together, utilize people's talents to be able to move programs, efforts forward on a campus to really benefit students in a more holistic, collaborative way. So I think the majority of the work I did was was designed towards um, bringing people together and finding ways that they could get together and use their expertise to make change for students um, and finding out ways that, again, we could get more advisor voice throughout the campus because advisors are in that one position that is so unique on campus where you're so connected and so close to the student experience and what their challenges are 
at the same time, deeply understanding the fabric and complexities of the institution. Um, there's not a position like that on campus other than that. And so having that that voice in the room is so essential to make good decisions um, that that was another thing that was important to me is how do we find ways to get that advising voice in every room on campus as these discussions are happening. Um, so there's a lot of specific things. And, but um, I, I'm intrigued, though, to, I suppose, for me to, to hear more around, you know, you, you mentioned that, I suppose, that you, you know, you were inspired to get into the administrative side of advising in talking to students and hearing, you know, what was, you know, being done to them and, and, and the control they didn't have. So I suppose maybe I, I'd be interested in hearing more around, like, um, ta- taking that next step and and wh- wh- why you you did that, your work now, and, and what your inspiration is, what, what, what your, where you want to take this. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, the reason I uh, am so excited to be in this role with Nakata is again, being able to do similar work to what I was doing on the campus, but much more broadly. Uh, So throughout broader systems and throughout associations, um, just as we need to deal with all the silos on our campus and how to bring those together, that needs to happen also at the association level. So we've got all these different associations that work with students in different capacities if we're not working collaboratively on these efforts, then when it comes to things like grant funding, when it comes to state regulations, when it comes to to all the different levers and mechanisms for how we could actually see improvement on a campus, if those aren't done collectively, then we're going to be, again, at cross forces on these things. And so um, that's a reason I'm excited about this particular role that I'm involved with and you know, we've got some tremendous partnerships that are that are really moving forward in a way that I know are going to benefit students in the long term. Um, I like to talk about, you know, I don't, well, I don't like these terms, but this is a reality. So we've been in a student deficiency era for a very long time. So everything that that we have focused on has typically been something that is that is lacking in students. Um, you know, there's always the assumption that when students come in, there's something that needs to be remedied, fixed. Um, there's something along those lines. You know, you take a bad grade in a class. The assumption is that student needs tutoring, that student needs time management. That, well, we don't know that, right? There's a lot of other things at play, not only personally, but institutionally. So, you know, there's family challenges, financial, food insecurity, day daycare jobs, those sorts of things. The institution puts up roadblocks um, related to forms, procedures, deadlines, policies, uh, the inability to get an actual appointment with an advisor when needed. I mean, there's, there's all these things that we put up that are, that are roadblocks. And really, if we are going to see collective collaborative change on this, we have to be focused on those things that are institutional deficiencies um, so let me throw out something that I think will be a little controversial, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, and that is thinking about some of the, the way the work's changed is there's something 
lacking in you, um, like like the academic um, tutoring, that sort of thing, that you need. Um, most recently, though, this it's taken a new twist, and and I want to I don't want to downgrade this work because I think this work's really important, but I think it's also where to see both sides of it. So all the work that's going on now, for example, with with grit, with the growth mindset, with how do we help students be able to have more um, access to this? Um, yes, that's absolutely important. But at the same time, could this just be another layer of a student deficiency model, right? Are they coming in, are students coming in, and we're saying, oh, you need more grit, yeah, right? You need more student growth. You need more ability. You need more, again, while those are much more positive approaches, if you look deep down, that's really what's lacking again. And so I think what we can really do better is really start deeply dissecting what we're doing within our institution. So if we really want this to change, <laughs> we've got to collectively change our institutions, our teaching, our advising, our structures, and so that they are really being approached from the student needs and student outcome lens. And so I think it's important as new programs come through, as we, we see opportunities that, that we just pause on each of these and say, you know, really, is this, is this going to benefit students in a way that's going to change culture of institutions? Um, and that's probably a lot more than you ever asked for in that question. But <laughs> as you can see, I'm really passionate about it because I think there's a lot of deflectors in higher education to make these changes. And, and without having the awareness of, is there a deflection component in some of these things? Um, it, it, it's going to hobble us in some areas. So, One of the student populations that I work with is students on academic probation. So a lot of times if I'm talking to someone that isn't in, in advising or is in education, and I try to explain the student population I work with, immediately it's like, well, there's something wrong with the student. And it's like, well, no, each student is an individual and might there might be something that they need to work on, or it might, like you said, might also be something that it's the institution. There might be some barrier. So I know a lot of what we've tried to do is kind of question everything that we do, every process, every petition, every type of form. And are we looking at it from what makes our life better as an, as an office or as an institution, or is this going to have some impact on a positive note for a student? Absolutely. Yeah, that is just so important, Matt, what you just talked about is it's, um, and again, it's, we get in these modes where it's easy and we're trying to get a lot done and trying to make things and it, these things take reflective time and that doesn't come easy <laughs> with people's schedules and that sort of thing, but it's absolutely so important. I mean, you think about something like academic standing, right? Um, and I can, I can speak from the UC system and, and the amount of effort that goes into the sort of subject to dismissal, dismissal end of that process. Um, just imagine, all right, if you've got an entire staff that's working on that for three weeks, what could that look like if that was at the beginning of the process, right? If that was, if all that time was redirected to when students are coming into the institution and getting an understanding of the, the power of advising and what everyone's here for and 
but those are not that that's not an easy you don't just swap these sorts of things they're very deep and ingrained and take time but as long as we keep that lens in mind and keep that if that's a daily filter that runs through everything that we do we're bound to make good progress here so it's really just being aware of that and being able to um um, to make decisions ultimately that come down to uh, one of the phrases that um, my vice provost at University Davis always used is, and how does that help students? Every, every time, every meeting, we had to be very clear about how any decisions that were made help students. And so that, that's a pretty simple question. So <laughs> just start with that. So that's a, a wonderful question. I think that should be asked at every meeting in, in higher ed. Uh, I'd certainly be in favor of that. Um, one of the things I suppose um, that may, and I, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but these, these, the changes and, 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 you know, how, how does that help students? How do we test though? Does, does that, how students, if we implement changes, how are we going to know if it's having a positive impact? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, I think the one area that's, um, again, and this is, everyone on this podcast knows how busy advisors are and how much time these things take. Um, but ultimately my experience has been what moves change on a campus is ultimately at the core, um, the student experience and how students experience things, the struggles they're feeling, that sort of thing. Everybody at most universities is there because they care deeply about students. And so, being able to find ways to get student voice out there more, whether it's through focus groups, surveys, being able to share uh, work that students have done and found, that's where we can, again, start making sure that these match up more closely. Um, I'll briefly discuss a program that we're a partnership we're involved in called Excellence in Academic Advising. And that's really an opportunity for campuses to have a very intense two-year um, self-study that happens in year one and then an action plan year two uh, to really transform advising on the campus. And as part of that process, um, and you can go to the Nakata website uh, to be able to look more about what's involved in that. Uh, I won't detail it here on the podcast, but one of the interesting pieces that, of that is that includes a student survey and also a faculty and staff survey. And what's been really interesting is what students are expecting out of advising collectively, you know, as we look across institutional type, across different uh, backgrounds, experiences, um, is not matching what we're actually providing through advising. And so, again, if we continue to focus on the student voice, we're going to be able to start making positive changes in that way. Same is true with the 
faculty staff part of that. When you look at the what faculty and staff see as their role with advising, and you look at what students are expecting, those are very different. Uh, and if we don't get to the point where we see those actually aligned well, uh, we're going to continue to have conflict. And so the way we do that, again, is to get deeper and deeper into the uh, the student voice and find out what it is that that ultimately is going to be most powerful and be able to match that with our expertise on what we know students need that they may not know they need, right? Those those components as well. So, And you said this is a, a two-year program. So you're looking at essentially like every level from institution to the student to faculty, staff, and in a way kind of seeing if everything aligns, if everything is working or how to improve that? Yeah. So the way it works, Matt, is there's... Um, nine conditions for excellence in academic advising. And those, again, have come out of the research that's gone on over the decades. So that was culled into a very fine list of, of areas that have been very clear in combination with the uh, consulting work that we've done that have identified these things. Each campus then has a committee that works on each individual condition. And what they're doing is they're comparing some key performance indicators with the evidence that they have on their campus, and they're making a judgment about where they fall in relation to that particular condition. Then all nine committees put together uh, recommendation reports. Those get rolled up into a collective for the entire campus. And then that's ultimately what moves into year two is um, a honed sort of action plan for areas that the campus is most interested in pursuing and making change with so is that helpful oh definitely so it, it it's it's a process and just like you were saying we're talking about the example with uh like students and probation let's say it takes time absolutely yep but if you if you work at it and you take the time to do it you put the effort in you sh- we should see some positive come out of it. Yeah. And I think one of the, so I worked with one of the campuses uh, as a, it's called a fellow role, uh, essentially helping campus leadership as they're doing this sorts of stuff. And what was really interesting is how many people across the campus learned the depth of advising (laughs) through these committees. So we had people in human resources in finance in IT Uh, institutional research on these various committees. Of course, lots of faculty, not all of them advise. And it's been fascinating just having the campus have a really good understanding then and of what actually happens in advising and what the potential is. So that's sort of a side benefit of this work as well when you do these really intense sort of self-studies. Yeah, I think, I mean, the the self-studies are are fascinating and and certainly I've been involved more on the self-studies in relation to accreditation but I know that there was massive learnings that were taken from that Um, so I can only imagine the learnings that you would uh, take from a self-study around advising which as you said you know it 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 goes across the the entirety of the the institution Um, uh, I would love to see that rolled out in every institution but for institutions where, you know, that's not going to happen maybe just yet, um, I, are there things that you think advisors could could do, could take with them in their day-to-day? Yeah, absolutely, Colm. Um, so I think, as I discussed, uh, Davis and some of the work that 
you know, even doing in this role, being in the rooms where important decisions are made is, is absolutely necessary. So finding ways to sort of insert yourself into new areas around the campus is, is a really powerful way to start spreading the word of, of, of advising and, and what the possibilities are. Um, I already mentioned the student voice and how important that is. Um, so having some good connections with, with your student government, with the various student groups on campus, being able to help them in ways that they're collecting information, you know, for their own uh, work that they're doing. Um, you already heard my question, and how does that help students? And I'll uh, uh, cite that from Dr. Carolyn Thomas from University of California, Davis, as being said daily on that campus. <laughs> um, I would add to that one that I use, and that is what, is, what is it that students deserve through their interactions with advising, keeping that as a, as a focus. Um, reflecting on your own praxis, your own daily activities, learning from yourself uh, as you do these things. That's been really powerful for me, um, questioning my own beliefs and, and how, why I think about these different things in relation to advising in higher ed. Um, of course, y'all are familiar with the Nakata offerings. There's a couple that are very deep on thinking about action plans and how you can make change. The Summer Institutes are one example. The Administrators Institute that's coming up this, this next week uh, in New Orleans. And then usually there's conferences that deal with some of these challenges as well. Um, and then I'm just going to add one that you all are doing right now, and that's uh, have your voice be heard, right? Whether it's blogs, articles, speaking, podcast, research, formal writing, whatever mode you're comfortable with, uh, the more that we can hear more from advisors that have this really special relationship with students in the institution, the more we're going to see uh, awareness change. So that'd be my suggestions. Yeah, just kind of the last thing you said, like everyone has a voice and someone's always listening. So whether it is a podcast, a blog, going to a meeting, you know, writing an email, someone's eventually probably going to see that and there might be something that happens from that. Um, but even like attending a meeting, Sometimes it's just asking if you can go to that meeting. Um, and a lot of times we don't ask. We just might assume that if no one asks me that they don't want me to go. But just ask and see what happens. The worst your boss or someone might say is no. But if they say yes, going to that meeting or you know being that voice, you can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know I've seen that happen so many times where it's just a matter of a uh, an advisor saying, hey, can I be part of that faculty curriculum meeting? And people are like, yeah, sit in the back row, you know, don't talk or whatever. But it, <laughs> that's where it starts. And then the advisor throws out a really good suggestion and people have this aha moment. Uh, and then pretty soon you're chairing the meeting. So it's um, these things happen magically if you uh, and again, it doesn't have to be forceful. It could just be is would it be OK if I sit in that meeting? Is there a reason um, there's not an advising person in that meeting or, yeah, that's a great place to start, Matt. Agree. Yeah, and I've seen that happen at institutions. I've seen that happen at advising conferences, seen that happen at Nakata. Just, just ask where you could help and someone's bound to give you a spot somewhere. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I mean, this this conversation has been brilliantly inspirational for me, but I, I find that with so many Nakata events, Nakata, people involved with Nakata, you get, because it, it works on so many levels. I mean, there is the structure and the theory, which is so important um, that we, we know, you know, what the, where, where we want to take it and, and, and at a, uh, you know, an institutional level. But also there's like practical everyday tips that you can really utilize in your own work to truly make a difference. And it makes a difference on the advising side, but it may, it's knowing that it makes a difference to students as well. Um, and yeah, that's, that's for me has been one of the, the, the biggest benefits and the draws to being involved with Nakata is that wherever I go, whoever I talk to, there's always a takeaway. There's always a, a nugget of, of info that I leave with going, yep, I'm going to implement that into, into my daily work. Yeah. I would just add one other thing with that too, because I think this work, this works hard that we all do and advocating for change in a very structured, uh, long-standing place is not easy. Um, one of the things that's been most important for me, especially when I was in these campus-wide roles, is is having colleagues that I can bounce things off of um, that aren't on my same campus. Because a lot of times it's really important to say, you know, I really need your view externally from this situation. And, and again, Nakata can this is where those, those connections can be made and the depth of those connections is really indescribable. Um, when, when you have that level of connection with somebody on such an important uh, potential change that can happen on your campus and, and you, and you really know that you can rely on the feedback you're getting. Um, it's, well, you, you both know, I'm sure you've been through this too. So <laughs> can't mention that enough, how powerful that's been in my journey as well. Yeah, most definitely. And we want to be mindful of your time, Brett, and we know we're going to have you on on future podcasts, but we definitely appreciate you being on this one and really kind of explaining from, you know, your role now and what you're doing, all the great things Nakata is doing, and just even people learning about what you did at, at Davis and administrator roles and even how you got into advising. So I think listeners will be able to really gain something uh, from your interview. Great. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Excited for the work that you both are doing, and I hope uh, you continue it. I know the amazing number of topics that are probably out there on on your mind. So, <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Brett. We we appreciate it. We we look forward to uh, definitely having you back. And uh, yeah, there there are a whole host of, of topics that Matt and I uh, hope and intend to cover in uh, in future podcasts, but. Um, for me, the student experience and student success is at the heart of everything. Uh, everything builds on top of that. So I think this has been really fascinating. And just thank you once again for taking the time to, to chat to us. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks again to Brett McFarland for taking the time out of his day to record this episode with this interview. He's a wonderful person. If you've ever seen him at conferences, go up to him. He is such a wealth of knowledge and he gave so much information in this one that I think we can all take in and probably learn from. And speaking of one of the things he talked about, which was making sure that we think about the student and what's in it for the student and is it benefiting the student, call him. You've talked to some students, right? Yeah, I have indeed, Matt. Um, 
I talked this week to uh, Joe and Christina, and they are were both, I suppose, uh, global ambassadors. They worked with me when I was at Trinity College Dublin. And I thought it would be really interesting to hear from them because both of them probably took kind of non-traditional routes into university in Ireland. And I thought, uh, based on that, that they would be really interesting people to get the uh, student, to hear about the student experience from. Um, And they, they both, were generous enough to to take the time to to speak to me about uh, how they came to to study in Ireland, or in Christina's case, how she came to to study from County Mayo, which is out west and is absolutely beautiful. Cannot recommend to listeners come to come to Ireland, go out west and go down and visit Cork and Kerry. But uh, Christina does mention that and the beauty of of Mayo in the interview. So I think without further ado. Uh, we should hear uh, from Christina and Joe in their own words. What are we, two years from, two years on from when uh, you guys were ambassadors in the global room? Yeah. 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 Good times. Good old days. Uh, nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> and um, now I, I thought it would be really good to have you both on on this new Adventures in Advising podcast and talk to you about, I suppose, the student perspective and an international perspective in many ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, NACADA is a global community of advisors, but obviously primarily based in the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joe, you can probably speak to it a little bit uh, uh, on that. Potentially. Um, <laughs> for, for for those listeners, Joe is originally uh, from Long Island. Yep, from Long Island, New York. And uh, came to study here in Dublin. Yep. And uh, now living and working here. Yep. And uh, Christina, you are originally from Mayo. Very exotic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listeners won't get mail for Sam, but what, would, what, what does mail for Sam mean? Mail for Sam is a cultural and historic moment. So basically, a very long time ago, the Mayo football team, they won the big tournament and they paraded and got cursed. And they were cursed that they would never win a game until the last team member died. And they haven't won a game. And there's a couple of team members still alive. But every year we have faith. And that's the main thing. So Mayo for Sam is what we say because we want the Sam Maguire Cup. There you go. That's You'll get it. You'll get it one day. <laughs> one day. But I think that's a nice, succinct uh, summation nice of summary. Uh, what, uh, what Mayo for Sam is. So essentially we have uh, two former uh, students and two former student ambassadors and uh, hopefully we'll have some uh, interesting conversations, some insights into higher ed in Ireland. Um, Joe, may may start with you then. Yeah, sure. So I suppose, what what was it like being an international student 
moving, new country, new continent. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think in order to say what it was like when I got here, I'd have to at least start a little bit with why I came here in the first place. So when I was in high school, I had come over to Ireland and explored there. When I was younger, I did Irish dancing. That was my intro into the culture, and that was kind of what made me want to jump across the pond to here. So when I came into Ireland, I had an inkling of what it might be like, um, but it was very interesting when I first then came over in 2012 and studied at Trinity College in Dublin. Um, to understand, first thing that I learned was academically, it is a bit different from America. Um, it is less focused on continuous assessment. That was the first thing I remember recognizing, was that it is, uh, instead of being taught in incrementally with exams very regularly. It was taught towards the test at the very end of the year. And then also culturally, when a lot of my friends were going to college in America, they'd be looking at the um, more the, the culture of the college. So looking at kind of what the uh, non-academic things were that were going on. And myself, I came over and I wanted to get involved. I did get involved in like a soccer team on, in, in the freshman year here, but there's less of a sports culture. So there's not as much of everybody going out uh, for the big game on Sunday or whatever it is. Um, so I think kind of those were the two highlights academically. It was a different academic structure. Um, and then like socially, it wasn't as centered on sports. Mm -hmm. But as I've been here longer, I've found kind of the positives and negatives in, in and out of that. So yeah, that was my no, I, certainly at university level, um, sports are completely different, I think, to what you see in the United States. Um, but I suppose I'm, I'm interested as well in, in thinking like you you've gone through the American system for high school yep. and uh, you would have dealt I suppose with high school counsellors, yep. your friends would have been dealing with academic advisors. Yep. Um, what was it like for you, the, the supports that were on offer at an Irish institution? Yeah, so for me, me specifically, and again, sample size of one, but my experience was in uh, Trinity, specifically where I studied, I had a tutor who was kind of my dedicated academic staff member who would be uh, my uh, champion, I suppose, uh, in academia. Um, my experience with, with uh, my tutor was very good the times that I went to him and had that support. Um, he was there and answered it, um, but it wasn't as much of a forced upon me active role, that there was somebody reaching out to me to try and help. It was if I ever needed help, there was somebody there, but I wasn't reached out to to have that support. Now, I did get a bit of that, though, in these uh, S2S mentors. So there was student to student mentors. So there was a support system within that. Uh, but again, following the first maybe three or four weeks of the forced introductions. I say forced, but I mean it in a positive way. Um, like the, the, the initial introductions, the ice breaking, like, hey, get to know everybody. Um, it then fell very quickly into a, if I reach out for help, then I get it. Um, which, which was good in many ways that it wasn't, you know, um, a continuous email every week or a text message all the time. Um, so, I mean, yeah, in that way, it was, it was supportive to me. I did enjoy that support system, but it was... At times, I almost wished, given that there was a bit of, as I said, with the uh, social cultural gap that is left out from that sports culture, and my high school in particular was a very sports-focused high school, that gap being left out, there wasn't necessarily something perfect that filled that gap in the supports that came from the academia. So it was a balance, and there was a lot, uh, there was a lot of growth that came from being in that, I think because I had to stand on my own two feet a bit more than I might have expected I had to. Mm -hmm. 
But again, yeah, I mean, the pros and cons in both ways. So, Joe talked a little bit about, you know, making the decision. And as an international student, international students have to make that decision much earlier. Their application process begins a lot earlier. They get their offer. Very often there can be an immigration component to that. For Irish students, generally in Ireland, Irish students uh, do their high school exams in June. They get the results in August and only then do they know where they're going to be going to university. So it means that there can be two or three weeks. There's a scramble, finding accommodation uh, and then beginning. Now, Christina, I know that for you uh, as you're a drama student yeah. at, at Trinity, um, it was a little bit different. Maybe you could talk me through your kind of process and how it worked. Sure. So, yeah, it was it was very different. So uh, with the with applying for college, we get to fill out like what's called a CAO form and we have like uh, I think it's around 10 uh, level 8 and 10 level 7s that we can fill out so they're just college placements that we can we, like a list of college placements that we want and uh, you fill that out in your sixth year um, but you fill it out and you put anything on it is the is the is the mantra because you just need to get it filled because what happens is in your six years when things start to get real so you do a thing called fourth year transition year where you can do like a where you're supposed to start feeling things out, doing work experience, trying to find out if this is somewhere if the ideas that you have in your head is somewhere where you want to be, and then in sixth year you start to get real. Now in drama, I got uh, accepted onto my course uh, probably I think six months before anything like the CAO results came out, so I had something to work for and I had something to like focus myself on. But for other students, you know, you can change your CAO form up until July. There's a literal, it's called change of mind form. So you change that in July, your results come out in August, you know, it's very last minute. So we do have a lot of room to maneuver because we don't have a lot of, as much considerations, I think, as international students. I mean, you're literally moving your life over. Uh, whereas us, we're, you know, you're never five hours away from anywhere else. You know, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was very for me. I had it sorted out um pretty early, um, but for a lot of people, they just leave it till July. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which uh, which obviously totally different from from the uh, North American system. Um, but then talk to me then for from being in an Irish secondary school and going through that system. What was it like coming to to university? What was that transition like for you? The transition was it was simple enough. Um, but also very, it was a lot different than I thought it was going to be. So for listeners, I come from a very small town in the west of Ireland, the 6,000 people. Um, if you imagine what you think Ireland looks like, green hills, farms, um, people with kind of funny accents, like that's where I come from. And to move there to the biggest city in my country is, is a big move. And uh, I'm just really lucky to have my parents. They really, really helped me with my transition. They, I remember my parents brought like car loads of stuff and made sure I had everything. And they, my, I remember my mom teaching me how to make meatball pasta <laughs> before <laughs> I left. So I'd be able to support myself and stuff like that. So it was, it, the transition like physically was fine, but emotionally and like kind of mentally, it was very different. I mean, you are moved into a place there's so many people, you know, you walk in, the buildings are huge and it's, you, you don't know. They all, like, you have to go to room 2051. It's like, where, where's that? <laughs> you know, and I was very lucky. I was on the TAP program, so I got a little bit more orientation than most people would. 
but it was still so overwhelming and so you know people make friends so quickly they join society so quickly and for me personally i take things that i need a little minute to think about things so i always kind of sometimes i felt one step behind a lot of people so that was the hardest transition but like i was very lucky to find a lot of supportive people so i was okay so i think joe you touched on this i think in ireland there's a kind of an expectation that people are going to reach out for help uh you know it's it's not going to find you necessarily um I think possibly there that's changing a little bit as time moves on, but but it is a big distinction between um, Irish higher ed and and maybe um, North American higher ed. But you know, um, with that distinction acknowledged, can you talk to me and, and Christina? You, uh, I'd be interested in, in hearing from you as well about the supports I suppose that you found. Like one of the things Nakata it talks about is you know, enhancing students' educational development. Mm -hmm. So how did you find Irish higher ed? How did, you, how did you find Trinity as an institution in terms of supporting and developing your education? Do you want to go first? If you have something, go ahead. I have, like, a few thoughts. So, I mean, the... the, the yeah, no, I'll go. So, like... Like I did find it good. There were a lot of things that really did help help to develop me. One of the one of the biggest things in terms of supports was my lecturers and the tu the tu tutorials that we had. So I'm not sure. Genuinely, I'm not sure if they're called tutorials in American higher ed. But we had uh, after all of our lectures, we would have uh, a tutorial session, which would kind of go over um, what it was that we learned in the class. And I found those some of the most informative and supportive situations that I was put in while I was at college. So it would usually be a uh, older student or a like graduate student who would be teaching us a bit of what we had learned throughout the throughout the course. And that was hugely helpful because that was also a situation where we, were, where we would all be sitting in one group and kind of be talking together about what it was that we were learning. But it was also a situation where it's a smaller group than maybe 200 students that you'd have in a massive lecture hall. And that as kind of a support to students was massively helpful helpful for me mm -hmm. um i may have others but if you yeah saying. for me i was lucky in a way that when i arrived at trinity hall which is the student on campus uh accommodation i remember so well i could i it's like a movie i my dad who doesn't like driving in dublin but he did it for me because he loves me we were driving into trinity hall and there's a guy there and he makes my dad roll down the uh window and he's like, and a big Northern Ireland accent on him. He's like, oh, where are you going? And, I'm, and my dad's telling him my, my accommodation number, whatever. And I'm looking at him, look at, and on his name tag, his name is Julian Hamilton. And I'm like, Hamilton, that's my name. And that began the journey of me and Julian being really good friends. And Julian is a chaplain in Trinity. And uh, I wouldn't be the most religious person, but the chaplaincy for me was a massive sort of support throughout my entire college space is a space for me on campus to like sit down and just have a time of peace and just quiet and meditation. Um, it was a place that I could go and talk to friends and have, uh, we like during my whole years, a lot of really interesting debates of people that I wouldn't usually have uh, associated with and have different opinion, opinions than me. So we actually had a really good conversations. And it was a place for me to go when I actually was at my lowest point and they found me uh, a lot of help. Um, so that was one big support for me. And as well as that, 
as Joe mentioned, like my lectures and my, like the drama course in Trinity, like they're some of the most caring people I've ever met. They uh, had a whole course or a whole class on, on how to write essays. And not every other course did that. I remember some of my friends in other courses really struggling with how to, a college essay is very different to what we write in secondary school. It's a whole different ballgame. And, and they were like, how do I do this? And I was like, you didn't have a class? They said no. So it was something that the uh, the course actually put on for us. That mm. and as well as that, they're very, very understanding. They're probably the most, I suppose, forward thinking people. There was a very specific emphasis on you know consent and listening about triggers. And I was I remember one thing. One some course content for me, I found very uh, difficult to uh, to listen to and engage with. And I remember going to my head uh, head of department about it. And she turned around, she, she was like, I am so sorry that this affected you. Please understand that you can leave if this affects you. And you can, you have a complete right to leave. It was one of the first times outside high, uh, secondary school that I was treated like an adult with feelings. And it, 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 for me, it was it really made the difference in my college career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have another one that I actually, like, ironically didn't think of because it's kind of the world that I now live in today, which is the world of, like, innovation and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't find the, like, sports community that I had in America, the biggest thing I was looking for was that sense of community, and where I actually found it was in the entrepreneurial supports that existed for students who wanted to develop their own business and build a venture. In Trinity, there's the, the Launchbox program, which is a summer accelerator program. Then there's Launchpad, which is a year-round incubation space for anybody who has an idea. So it's an idea you can walk in, come up with a new idea, and be around other people who are innovators. And then there are people who are there to sit down and mentor you and develop your idea. Um, which I found was, for me, a massive support because there's so much that you can learn from books and I was studying business and economics, but then to have a space where you're able to actually jump out there and apply what you're learning was massive for me. And that kind of sense of community and then having mentors there that could dedicate, dedicate an hour of their time to talk to you about an idea that you're passionate about that doesn't necessarily directly connect to your coursework was really important for me because rather than getting kind of bogged down in the books, I was able to start trying to apply it and see what I might want to do on the other side of that education. Um, I found that hugely growth for me. And obviously, as you know, now Calum, I'm still in, uh, still in the world of that. So I haven't left. Yeah. And I think that's something that I think we can come back and touch on uh, in another episode. I think it would be really interesting to look at that kind of entrepreneurial advising almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's definitely uh, something that we should chat further about. But for right now, I think what would be worthwhile covering is, um, I I was your your manager uh, in the Global Room. And for, yes, boss. for those listening, the, the Global Room, um, I suppose my, for me, what was a space to to bring people together, um, not and, and ignore where they were from, but to 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 look to wherever somebody was from, but to create that sense of community. Because what you were talking about, Joe, I think that is one area where um, it can be a real struggle for international students here. I think international student societies are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, they do great trips. They make people feel a part mm-hmm. of things. But when you talk to international students, they'll tell you that, oh, I only got to know other international students. 
Um, and yeah. for about probably for seventy five percent of international students, that's the case. There are twenty five percent that probably in in different ways meet with Irish students, but for a lot of them, it's just international students, and that's where I think international student societies almost do themselves a disservice with their with naming themselves. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy because when we Joe yeah. and I met in the international student society, and I remember I was why there, were you there? Exactly. <laughs> I was there because I had a load of friends who were from international countries and they were like, oh, we're doing all these events. And I joined and it was so fun. But I had so many people come up to me. You're not international. And I'll have you know, no, Mayo is not an international <laughs> place to be. But, you know, they were like, why are you there? I'm like, uh, I've met a lot of people who want to be my friend and they're super nice. And they're like, oh, you're my Irish friend. And I'm like, yeah, I am. But it was crazy the amount of people, there, Irish people that wouldn't have ever thought. Yeah. Of joining the International Student Society. Yeah, I think you're dead on with the label, Cal. It's like, yeah, just the fact that it's called the International Student Society is the idea that, yes, we're all international students, so they all go there, but then there's almost not a single Irish person there. Now, mind you, I was lucky and I met Christina there, so it's all it's all good. But the, yeah, you're right. The trips, it's it's like if there if there was a way to build an international student society that was exactly what it is in everything but name. And it was just at every student society, but that I don't know if that would work name wise. <laughs> I, I think the la- I think you could look to just change the name. I think once you put an international label on something, you immediately other it, mm. um, and and it means that domestic students are are so much less likely to get involved. But this was that was my aim in the global room was to create a space where we there was no other, yeah. um, and, and and to bring people together, and that's why I suppose I was really proud of some of the events that we we, we did, and you guys were involved in those, like the Halloween tours. I thought those were great mm-hmm. because it involved everyone, yeah. and it brought people together. And we did uh, the housing workshop in terms of how to find housing, which Irish students ne- wouldn't have necessarily yeah. received that either. So everything we did, I always was very intentional in not using. The term international, mm-hmm. um, but I suppose I'm interested in talking to to you both about your roles as ambassadors mm-hmm. and about I suppose working with the international students, working with Irish students, working with events. How you found being um, a, a global room ambassador? Wow. Okay, that's a big question. Uh, overall, it was awesome. Um, so point one about being a Global Room Ambassador when I was there was the absolute infinity of ideas you could come up with. You know, it was always a place that you could, you know, if anything was, if you wanted to do anything about uh, it, getting people involved with something, uh, celebrating a certain uh, national holiday, it was very much encouraged and you were very much welcome to experiment with that. And it was, that was a yes culture. Yeah. Like, yeah. And for me specifically, it was just, it was one, of, it was my first time seeing, being in a job that you could see firsthand how your role directly benefited and made somebody's life better. Because so many, like, you know, I mean, so many times you have these students coming in and they're they're coming from abroad. They've left their parents. They've probably never been uh, out of the country without their parents ever. They're on their own, and that's terrifying. Like 
I know that I'm like three and a half hours away from my mom and dad, and I would perish without them because they're absolutely amazing. But like that's uh, to be in somewhere else without them is so scary. I remember seeing all these uh, students coming in, and they th- their problems in the grander scheme of things are small and manageable and fixable. But for them, being on their own, trying to fix that in a space that you don't understand how things work, in this in a country that you don't understand how things work is so scary and so insurmountable sometimes and it was one of the first times where I was like wow like I have skills I understand how this works I understand how this country works we'll sort this out for you together we'll learn and we'll grow and we'll be fine Mm -hmm. and it was such a rewarding experience for me to be able to lend my expertise and my empathy a lot of the time um, to people and just be able to help them out and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I think a good segue there is I was one of the students you helped out because you helped me be introduced to the Global Room. Uh, Christina was a, an ambassador a year before myself, and then uh, she introduced me to Colum, and uh, I kind of just hung around the Global Room long enough that they eventually interviewed me, and I showed up to my interview strategically dressed like Colum, which I'm not sure I've ever told them I did, but uh, I did no, actually you analyze your clothing and wore exactly what you were going to wear the day before in the interview, and clearly it worked out, so dress for the job you I want is my Jeff. word of advice. And so I was so- like, do I look like Colum? I was like, excellent. Um, so with that I did end up getting the job and for me that was a real transformational moment for me in my journey from being kind of being an American coming abroad and studying at a college uh, that I had been passionate about going to to then being able to formally I guess like put the jersey on my back and it was like when the coach puts you in and it's like I've had four years of learning and understanding and experiencing everything this college has the good the bad the ugly and now I get to help other students actually solve those problems for themselves. And uh, well, you empowered me to be able to do that. And kind of, as Christina said, open the door to run with that in whatever way, shape or form that meant, be it um, all sorts of fun videos that made it really interesting for students and engaging. And I think that that was a really important thing that I appreciated being able to add was the fact that it was my own personality as a person who could connect with students and reach out to them in a way that they would respond to was great. But then, I mean, yeah, the real challenges that I had with my own like visa situation and work permits and like being able to go through those challenges day to day, there were students coming in with the same questions. And for me, it felt great to actually have the answers because I had found the answers myself. Um, But then for them, I mean, I think I was able to help and that was hugely transformational for me and I think for a lot of the students. All right, those are some wonderful interviews that you did, Colm. And what stands out to me uh, with these is that you've been able to keep these relationships with with your students from you know past roles that, that you've had. And the fact that they were willing to be part of this one is just amazing. But I think what's also nice with it is that one of one of your students is coming from that perspective of being from the States and being overseas. So them being an international student and kind of seeing from their perspective, um, how advising has worked and being a student and all of that. So really great. And it's really nice that we get these perspectives from these from these students. And speaking of students, um, I was over in South Dakota in December. Um, got to visit uh, Craig McGill, who took me to University of South Dakota, where he works, 
to actually do some interviews. Uh, so I was actually able to interview um, advisors there, which we have for another episode. Stay tuned for that. But I was also able to interview three students. So again, thanks for Craig for setting those up for me because we also want to make sure we had other student perspectives. And this first one that we have coming up is from Abby. Now, Abby is a graduate assistant who completed her degree in elementary and special education and is currently working on her graduate degree in psychology. So in this interview, she talks about being actually a nursing major before changing her major and her experience with her academic advisor. So enjoy. I'm here at University of South Dakota and I'm with Abby. How are you doing? Good. So uh, we're going to ask you a few questions, something we've been asking some students. Um, So you've been both an undergrad and currently a graduate student Mm -hmm. here at USD. What do you like about USD? Um, For me, USD is it really just feels like home um, as far as like the professors and different faculty around USD. um, There's there's always been super helpful in helping me out whenever I need it with anything, really. Perfect. And so as an undergrad, um, can you tell me what your major uh, was? And as a grad, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, so in undergrad, my uh, major was elementary and special education, and now I'm currently working on my school psychology degree. Fantastic. And what made you choose those as, as your majors? Um, I've always liked working with kids. I started off as a nursing major, um, but I didn't exactly like the sad feelings all the time, you know, so I kind of shifted a little bit there um, because I still wanted to work with children and just be in a school, I guess. And then um, after my residency, you know, I wasn't crazy excited to get my own classroom or anything like that. Like I knew something was just a little bit off. So then we just shifted it off into the school psychology world a little bit. And here we are. And yes, here we are. And it's kind of nice to maybe looking back to kind of see where things went direction wise, but ultimately everything happens the way it's supposed to. It's definitely a right fit now. So and that's actually a great way to put it. So that's a perfect fit. So last question is, um, so, you know, and I'm sure that um, academic advising, you've, you had to do that as an undergrad, at least, and meet with your advisor. What was your experience like? And do you feel that it, that it helped you? Um, yeah, so my experience with advisors was very positive, always. Um, I think the room down there, the office down there has a great group of people um, that are always ready and willing to help any student and um, kind of guide you in the right direction. And, you know, they guided me into where I'm at right now. So, yeah. And, and, and sometimes the students might be a little nervous in terms of seeing their advisor, but just like you said, they're, they're here to help and to guide. So perfect, perfect way to end that. And next up, we have Alanis, who is another graduate student at USD. Alanis, and this one discusses her time at USD as a student athlete, being both an undergrad and grad student at USD, and her experience working with her academic advisor, um, who was her athletics academic advisor. So let's take a listen. So I heard that um, you're a graduate student right now. Mm -hmm at USD, but you were also previously an undergraduate student Mm -hmm. here. What was your experience like um, as a student? Um, I would say it was pretty positive. I was also an athlete here too. So um, it was very busy, a lot of stuff going on, but overall I really liked going to school here. I'm from Arizona, so I came 1,200 miles away and I still really enjoyed going to school here. 
1,200 miles away and weather differences. Yeah. How are you liking the cold? I don't like the cold, but obviously I like it just enough to stay here for another two years for grad school. So, so um, from with this being filmed right now, last week apparently there was a lot of snow. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually coming at a good time because I'm from Southern California. Yeah. So for me, um, cold weather is like 65 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now it's right now in the 40s. So yeah, yeah I feel you there yeah, on that. I'm not, I'm not feeling it at all. <laughs> I can't wait to go back home once I've got you eight. And when is that going to be? Um, May 2021. All right. And early congratulations for that. <laughs> now, being a student, um, you've also probably had to go see an advisor and get academic advising. Um, what was your experience like with academic advising and working with advisors here? So um, athletes had different advisors from everybody else. So my athletic advisor, I absolutely loved her. Um, she was kind of like a second mom to me. I went in and talked to her and cried to her and also um, obviously scheduled classes and stuff. So I really enjoyed having her there. Um, she always made sure that our classes were scheduled around um, our practices. So we would be able to have morning classes and go to our afternoon classes too. So I really, um, I really liked having her as an advisor. Wonderful. And as an athlete, um, did you have like certain schedules like for, for training or had to work like your classes around um, your, your sport? Yeah. So we weren't allowed to have classes later than two o'clock because our practices were usually around 2.30. So um, yeah, we usually just had classes from whenever morning was until about two o'clock. If you, the only option was for you to have um, an afternoon class until like three, then we could do that, but we would just have a later group to practice with, or we would try to figure out if we can get a night class right after practice. And I'll just say mad respect to you and, and all at student athletes, because it's like you have, you're a student, but then you also have this other job of being an athlete. And so you have like multiple responsibilities and, and have to balance a lot and have good time management. So props to you for that. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad, but Um, I feel like being more busy gives you, like you said, gives you more time management because you don't have time to do anything else besides what you have going on. And last question. So, you know, we're talking about academic advising, senior advisor. Sometimes uh, some students might be nervous to see their academic advisor and, you know, may not know like, well, what do I ask them? Or, you know, I'm I'm scared to see them. What advice do you have for students that, that might feel they're in that boat? Um, I would say to build a relationship with your advisor. Um, I would also say to be prepared when you're going to go see your advisor. Make sure you know what classes that you're supposed to take. Um, Even though they're supposed to tell you, just still keep that in mind because they have a caseload of however many students. So make sure you know what you have going on. Make sure you kind of have your plan and then they'll just help you set that plan out. And our last student interview at USD is with Jillian. Jillian is a third-year student at USD. She talks about USD being her home, actually being a double major, and working as a student assistant in one of the advising offices. So, all right, here we go. How are you doing today? Good, how are you? Wonderful. So uh, we're asking students some questions in terms of like your experience, things like that. So um, you're a third year student here at USD. What's been your experience like as a student here? I've had a good experience. I've made lots of friends. Um, I definitely feel like this is home to me. Cool. And uh, speaking of cool, how do you like the weather here? I'm ready for hot weather. 
<laughs> me too. Me too. I'm only here for a few days, and I, I know otherwise, not for me. Now, um, what's your major here, and uh, what made you choose that as your major? I have a special ed and elementary education major, so a double major, and then I have coaching uh, endorsement along with it. Um, I went into special education because my brother has special education. I also have a really big reward seeing students have that aha moment. Cool. So you're doing a lot uh, just as a student with with, with your degrees that you're going to be getting. Um, and there's also that personal connection as well to it. Um, and I understand, too, that you not only as a student, but you're also a student employee. So can you talk about uh, the office that you work in and maybe how uh, your office helps students? I work in an office where there's a bunch of advisors for KSM students, but also education students. And we just help students and guide them along. A lot of times students will come in and ask, oh, when is this um, club meeting, do you know? And I always have to look in my email to look it up. But you ultimately find that answer for them in order to help them out because otherwise they, they'd be lost, right? Um, any advice, last question would be any advice that you have uh, for students um, um, who are looking to, I guess, get more involved on campus? Um, definitely ask people in your classes because you would be surprised. I have this class with one girl. I had no idea there was a KSM club or anything, and she was talking about it, and she invited me to it, and I was like, well, I'm busy enough. I don't know if I have time for it. But definitely the people in your classes have a bunch of things going on, and you can ask them. But even coming down to the office to ask us, we try to help. Yeah, definitely. And great advice with asking questions. As much as there might be emails sent out or um, things posted on the bulletin boards, you might miss that. You know? And so to have to be able to ask uh, questions to students and, and talk to them, then you find out even more. I didn't know that was going on, just like in your case. Yeah. But we definitely appreciate your time. I know you have classes to get to, so thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. So three great interviews there, Matt. And what stands out to me are a couple of things. Firstly, I think it's great that you got the opportunity to go and visit another campus and to meet with people there and to get their perspective. But I think what really stands out is Matt Markin is walking the talk. We heard Brett talk earlier about, you know, how important and central students should be. And I think that is something that you know, you and I believe, and I think most advisors uh, are, are of a similar philosophy, but you took the time not just to meet with advisors when you went to South Dakota, you wanted to get student perspective as well. And kudos. And I think out of that, you know, we we ended up hearing three really interesting and diverse voices. And I, I just, I you know, for me, listening to the student voice and hearing uh, them and their input is is really important for us as advisors, um, but also for the profession, but also for our institutions. You know, it it, it is kind of what what Brett talked about and. That's what we are endeavoring to do in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, like Brett said, and even through our students that, that we've interviewed and their perspectives, it is all about the student and what their needs are, what are they looking for, what's going to help them. 
And that helps us know what, what, what's our goals as an institution, as an advising office, as a department, whatever it might be. And so it's always making sure that we're, we have that student voice and that we are listening and we are asking them questions. That, that's absolutely spot on. I think this is an episode that I am coming out of feeling really energized and that there is a lot that I'm going to take from this and bring into to my work and look to truly embed it into it. Absolutely. But we're running out of time with this episode. But we sure have quite a bit that we're looking to do. Indeed. And we can now say um, when we were recording the last episodes, they hadn't been released, but now they are. We are available across all of the podcast uh, platforms. We're on Apple, we're on Stitcher, we're on Spotify. Um, and, and I guess we would love if you, um, you know, would hit that subscribe button. If you wanted to give us a rating, that would be really helpful in terms of helping others to, to find us. And um, as we, we always say, we would love to hear from our listeners. Let us know, are there particular topics that you would like us to cover um, or ideas that you have uh, for us? And I know we've already heard from some folks that have reached out to us on our personal uh, social media that said they've enjoyed uh, the podcast thus far. They've joined the variety of different videos or different interviews. But also, uh, we did hear from one that uh, said that apparently I gushed over how much I adore and appreciate uh, Leah Panganibon and Ben Hopper. And yes, it is true. They are two of my favorites. I have a lot of favorites. I love everybody, but I really like Leah and Ben. I, I think it's good to acknowledge where where somebody has, uh, you know, has made a contribution to your life and that they are one of your favorites. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it is it's positive to acknowledge that. So uh, for me, continue to, to be you, Matt Markin. I will indeed. Excellent. So that wraps up today's episode um we will have an episode for you on the first monday of every month maybe another one in february we shall see and indeed thank you very much to all of our interviewees today we really appreciate them taking the time to chat with us all right take care everyone we will see you soon Don't want a complication, complication.